Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and society. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about censorship, censorship of science fiction, censorship in science fiction, and all the stuff in between. Mm -hmm. And in the second half of the episode, we have special guest Ron Turner, who is the publisher of Last Gasp Comics. And he started that back in the late 60s and early 70s and dealt a lot with censorship when he was selling indie comics and underground comics. So he's going to tell us some more stories from that. But before we get started, just a wee content warning. There's going to be some sexually explicit material in this episode because we are talking about censorship, and that's what tends to get censored most. So if you are offended by sexually explicit talk, then you might want to stop listening now. Thanks very much, and here's the show. So just to start out, let's define a term or two. In this episode, we're talking mostly about censorship done by the courts in the United States. We're here in the United States, and that's what we know the most about. And we're also talking about how works of art are censored in communities by different kinds of groups. They could be parent groups or schools or churches. We're not debating free speech in this episode. So we're not debating what counts as legitimate free speech and what kinds of speech should be allowed. We're just talking about when things get censored and they get flagged as censored and how that works. How did this begin? How does censorship in science fiction and comics begin? Where does it start from? It starts in a lot of different places all over the world, obviously. And I think in the United States, it's interesting to look back kind of to the late 19th century. And at that time, a lot of our censorship laws in the states were being codified by a moralist named Anthony Comstock, who had done a lot of work with the YMCA, which used to be an activist litigation organization that was aiming to reform censorship laws. And by reform, I mean expand. After he finished with the YMCA, Anthony Comstock founded a group called the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. And he spent a lot of his time lobbying Congress for more expansive censorship laws. Basically, the one thing you need to know about this, other than the fact that Anthony Comstock was a total butthole, is that (laughs) his definition of obscenity, which really has stuck around throughout most of the 20th century and, and on into our own time, is that things are obscene if they might corrupt children. Mm. And that was kind of the cornerstone of his argument. He wrote a very influential book in 1883 called Traps for the Young, where he talked about things sent through the mail that could corrupt children, whether that was sexually explicit material or material related to things like gambling he was really concerned about as well. And so His measurement of whether something was obscene had to do with this kind of ineffable idea of would it corrupt the youth. Mm. And then this comes back in a really big way for science fiction and comic books um, in the 1950s when a very socially conscious child psychologist named Frederick Wortham 
had been working with, also in New York City, like Anthony Comstock, Wortham had been working with youth in Harlem and other uh, parts of the city where there were large communities of people of color and people living in poverty. And he had this very progressive idea that he wanted to help kids avoid going into life of crime and things like that. But in the process of his research, he decided that the main thing that was causing these kids to go bad, as he thought of it, was reading comic books. And he wrote a book that was published in 1954 called The Seduction of the Innocent. So you can hear the kind of echo Mm -hmm. of Anthony Comstock there. And his sort of buzzword was juvenile delinquency. And here's a clip of him uh, addressing a Senate subcommittee on juvenile delinquency and talking about how comic books were connected with that. The real question is this, are comic books good or are they not good? If you want to raise a generation that is half stormtroopers and half cannon fodder with a dash of illiteracy, then comic books are good. In fact, they are perfect. It is my opinion, without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation, that comic books are an important contributing factor in many Yeah, that's frankly kind of horrifying, especially when you realize that it had a huge impact on the comics industry. It basically decimated the comics industry for a long time because of this crackdown that Wortham caused. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, he wasn't freaking out just about like explicit horror comics or really intense adult themes. It was Batman and Superman and, you know, other things like that, that he was also just like really objecting to. That's right. I mean, one of his big targets was EC Comics, uh, run by William Gaines, who later did Mad Magazine. And those were horror comics. And, and of course, that was, I think, a very easy target. But as you said, he was also really heavily targeting Batman, which he felt was encouraging homosexuality. And he talks about this a lot in his book. And then later, there's this terrific article written by an academic named Carol Tilley just a few years ago, who got access to Wortham's private papers, which had been basically under seal until 2010. And what she discovered by going through his work was that he'd actually fabricated a lot of his evidence and that he'd turned one kid into like 10 kids. He would interview a kid about comics and then in his book claim that it was like four different kids who'd said the things that just one kid had said. So he exaggerated the numbers of kids that he'd talked to. He exaggerated the kinds of things that the kids were saying about the comics. He has some really heartbreaking interviews where he talks to a young black girl who gets a lot of hope from reading Sheena comics and talks a lot about how reading Sheena made her feel like she could be strong and beat people up. And he talks about how this is, of course, leading her into juvenile delinquency. Um, And the same thing about um, young men who are interested in Batman uh, becoming gay and things like that. His research at the time, however, was considered impeccable. And so his work led to things like the Comics Code, as you said, it really kind of shut down the comics industry. And so that's kind of the beginning of really like the kinds of censorship that we're still dealing with today in both comics and in the realm of science fiction. You and I, when we were prepping for this episode, we wanted to find out if there were any themes oh, yeah. in um, you know, the kinds of sci-fi books that are banned. 
And so lucky for us and for you, the American Library Association puts out an annual list of books that have been challenged the most by schools and libraries. Mm -hmm. So these are uh, local community schools and libraries where members of the community have challenged whether a book should be in the library or taught in the school. Not surprisingly, Harry Potter is on the Mm -hmm. list. It was the number one most challenged book, the the sort of set of books, were the number one most challenged um, in libraries and schools between 2000 and 2010. Other books that were in that list are Twilight, of course, the His Dark Materials trilogy, which Mm -hmm. starts with The Golden Compass, uh, Wrinkle in Time. I think that's a really, that collection of books are all kind of being challenged for religious reasons. They have magic in them. They they treat religion in a way that people find challenging in some way or, or upsetting. And they're mostly aimed at kids or teenagers like Harry Potter, Wrinkle in Time. You know, those are kind of kid YA books. They're, you know, they're literally affecting the youth. And I know that there were a lot of protests against Harry Potter when it first came out among Christian groups who felt like it was promoting the idea that magic, you know, that you could practice magic or whatever, which might lead people to become witches or something. The way that this usually works, I think, is that there's either one individual or a local group, like a local parents group, that kind of raises a stink and and protests and tries to get the library or school to remove the book. And so it becomes, you know, it's fine for anybody to complain about a particular book. It's when it they try to get an institution like a school or a library to remove it from the shelves so that nobody has access to it anymore. That's when it kind of shades over into censorship, I think. Yeah, there's a great example from uh, the American Library Association's 2016 list of a community college in Southern California where three separate books were, I think, probably challenged by the same person. It was a little tiny community college. The person challenged Why the Last Man, the comic books, the Sandman comic books, and the graphic novel Persepolis for being, quote, objectionable. (laughs) (laughs) The books were not removed from the community college library, but I think that's clearly the work of one angry person who is just very upset about these comics. Yeah, and they're all comics that have somewhat adult themes, but they're not, I mean, none of them is really that, you know, extreme. And I think also, I mean, Brian K. Vaughn has been a target in general, like Saga has also- The author of Why the Last Man. The, the writer of Light of the Last Man, Sa- Saga has also been kind of challenged a lot in local libraries because it's it's got some adult imagery. It's it's a weird comic. People claimed that Saga was like anti-family, which is so funny because it's a comic about a family. It's a, yeah, it's a very beautiful treatment of family and yeah. how, how important it is and how crucial it is to these characters' identities. So it's like really weird that somebody just either read it and got completely the opposite message out of it or never read it and just kind of like jumped to conclusions because like they saw. Like looked at the pictures or something like that. It's interesting to, to go back to the selection of books we talked about around magic and religion. The movie The Exorcist, um, which also obviously has a lot of religious themes in it, the trailer for The Exorcist, when it came out in 1973, the trailer itself was banned because it was considered to be too scary. Here's a little clip from that trailer. Something beyond comprehension is happening to a little girl on this street, in this house. A man has been sent for as a last resort to try and save her. Whoa! The funny thing is, there's not much 
talking in the trailer. We'll put a link to the trailer um, in the show notes. I urge you to look at it because it's actually, it really is quite terrifying. There's just that little bit of talking that we heard. And then the rest of the trailer is these kind of lurid, creepy black and white images of the different demons that inhabit the little girl, Mm -hmm. Reagan. And then we also see like little flashes of her face and little flashes of um, the priest trying to to get the devil out of her. But we you get almost no sense of what the movie is about. But the faces really remind me of like creepy pasta images yes. from the internet. And I was like, oh my god, Holy crap. like they are actually really really scary. And it's funny because. I'm sure that the trailer was banned. There's no such thing as banning something for being too scary. Like, obviously, I mean, how do you even measure that? But it's scary and religious. And mm-hmm. so I think it was hitting people. It was punching people's buttons because it was religious imagery. But it really is quite, I mean, it's it's one of the classic scary movies. And so, yeah. Um, so that was uh, banned uh, in many, many places. The other theme that we see in banned books from the American Library Association is books that are considered too political. Um, Cory Doctorow's novel, Little Brother, which is uh, about kids who are using hacking to challenge their government, banned at a school in uh, Pensacola, Florida. It was going to be a recommended reading book, and so a local principal uh, condemned it and said it should not be recommended because it promoted hacker culture. So, of course, Cory Doctorow and Tor Books, his publisher, sent 200 books directly to each kid in the school yes. district. <laughs> oh, my God. That's awesome. <laughs> Which I think is really delightful oh. and is exactly the right way to respond to this kind of thing. Yeah. And Little Brother is such a wonderful anti-authoritarian book. It's a book that actually does kind of instill kind of a, dis- a healthy distrust for authority. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's great to have people, especially after they've been told they're not allowed to read it, of course they're going to want to read it. So It's interesting because Little Brother is a book that is about censorship. And, yeah. and it is, of course, being censored. And this is a theme that we noticed a lot, that a lot of books in science fiction that deal directly with censorship have been repeatedly censored. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of books like Brave New World and 1984 that come up constantly on list of, of, of banned or, or challenged books. There are certain books that just like, even if they're you know, in some cases, almost 100 years old or decades and decades old, they still have that potency in terms of like challenging authority and challenging prevailing structures and kind of encouraging people to kind of question what they're being told by the people in charge. And it actually does my heart good to see that those books are still being, are still freaking people out. <laughs> I mean, I don't support book banning or challenging or censoring or anything like that, but it makes makes me happy to see that those books are still pushing people's buttons and yanking their chains. And they also, chains. I mean, Brave New World really starts a whole kind of subgenre in science fiction around the idea of conditioning mm-hmm. and around the idea of kind of mind control, but not mind control in the sense of like having a brain implant, but just like being kind of systematically forced to have certain feelings. And there's a very, I mean, there's a lot of scenes in the novel of conditioning. And one of the things we find out is that in this heavily stratified society where everyone's genetically engineered, the lower classes when they're children are conditioned to hate books. And we see these little kids who are like touching books and being given electric shocks so that they associate books with pain. And um, and so that's a, a very early example of a kind of an image of censorship. And then, of course, 1984 really perfects ways that we can talk about how language, how limiting language 
is a form of censorship. So in that novel, like, of course, there's state-controlled media, but there's also state-controlled language. And so there's certain terms that you, there's certain ideas that just can't even be expressed in language anymore. And so how do you have a revolution or how do you question the government when you don't even have the language to do it, that is, again, a kind of form of mind control, but it's also really about propaganda. And that's an idea, again, that you just see all over the place in science fiction. Yeah. So actually, we're going to take a really quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about how science fiction portrays censorship and how it shows us how to deal with censorship. Okay, so Annalie, we talked a little bit about Brave New World, but we haven't yet talked about like perhaps the most famous book that's literally about book burning in science fiction, and that is Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. And you know, how does that book hold up and what does it teach us about the process of suppressing and destroying books? Yeah, it's really interesting because it is a classic. It always comes up. It's been made into a couple of different movies. Most recently, it was a, an HBO film, uh, which I guess didn't do very well. But it's about a guy who's a fireman, and his job as a fireman is to find books and burn them. And the goal of the government in this sort of near future is to just get rid of all books. And there's two things that are really interesting about it. One is that the book itself was associated with kind of underground culture that was slightly obscene. And um, here's a clip of Ray Bradbury talking about how the book was first published. The original version of Fahrenheit was published in Galaxy magazine, a science fiction magazine. And then a young editor came along a few years later who had no money and he needed material and said, can you sell me something for $400? And I said, yes, I have a novel, Fahrenheit 451, and he bought it for $400. And that was Hugh Hefner. And it appeared in the second, third, and fourth issues of Playboy. So all the young men and all the old men of America owe me a debt of gratitude for helping start that magazine. Yeah, so we have Hugh Hefner to thank for giving us that book, basically. Like, I think yeah. I got, he got it in front of a different readership that hadn't been aware of it. <laughs> that is for sure. But I love the idea that Playboy, which was really part of what challenged people's ideas of what counts as um, you know obscene and not obscene, was also participating in popularizing this story. The other thing that's really interesting about the story is that it's not just about destroying books. It's also about the rise of social media. Huh. And Bradbury, throughout his life, kind of returns again and again to this idea that in the future, people will have massive wall-sized televisions that they will interact with and that they'll have these rooms that they go into where they participate in the stories that they're consuming. And of course, it's always crappy because he hates television. Bradbury hated television. And, and so it's always these like cheesy soap operas that he thinks are terrible. And in Fahrenheit 451, the fireman who's kind of questioning his role in destroying books is married to a woman who is obsessed with these soap operas. And she's so into them that she's now allowed to play a character in them. So it's very much a kind of 
imagining social media, that she's participating in the media that she's consuming. And it just takes over her life. Like she literally cares about nothing but that. And so it's both a condemnation of censorship, but also a condemnation of a certain kind of mass culture that Bradbury feels like is kind of making us dumber, basically. It's interesting that you see that kind of contrast. And then later, I think we see this in modern science fiction too, like in cyberpunk and right. um, and in stories about like filter bubbles. Like I was thinking about how Malka Older, who we had on the show several episodes ago talking about infomocracy, the first in her trilogy. Infomocracy is about a near future where everybody is in a kind of information filter bubble and they're not able to like make good political decisions unless they can kind of get out of that filter bubble. And so that's a new way of thinking about censorship, I think. Yeah, and it's a particular kind of dystopia where, you know, often in most dystopias, there's a a kind of pleasurable component. There's like Soma and Brave New World. There's something that's like being fed to people in to take the place of what they're losing. And I guess in like in Fahrenheit 451, 451, you have this like kind of fake social media-esque interactive soap opera stuff that kind of replaces the books that are being burned. And, you know, but it is a particular kind of dystopia where it focuses on information being suppressed, destroyed. Often it's information about, like, the truth about the dystopia, but it's my mind just immediately went to the movie Equilibrium, where basically it's a version of Fahrenheit 451 that's really extreme, where basically they've banned human emotions and they give people drugs to keep them from experiencing emotions, but that's not enough. They also have to have Christian Bale in wearing like a black trench coat stolen directly from the Matrix, going around destroying anything that could cause an emotional reaction. So he goes Including puppies. Including puppies, but also paintings, books, comic books, music. He just goes around like destroying works of art. And then his breaking point is when he has to destroy a cute puppy because like... And he can't do it. He can't destroy the cute... Yeah. I mean, this come is on. actually, I feel like, the third or fourth time we've talked about Equilibrium on this show because it's, it's, it's such a seminal... It's an important film. Yeah, it's an it's, important it's film. Important. You have to see Christian Bale like doing special gun-focused martial arts, but also saving a puppy. Yeah. And I mean, among the new crop of novels that are dealing with censorship, we also have things like Maggie Shen King's amazing novel, An Excess Male which is set in a kind of near future China. And that book, which, I mean, it deals with a lot of things, including sort of reproductive rights, but also it deals with state-controlled media. And it really plays into exactly what you were saying about like what, when you have censorship, what replaces it? And the characters in that novel have to deal with this They've kind of come up against the law, but they've also become kind of well-known. And so the state media has to kind of package them in this reality show. And um, it's a little Hunger Games-y, but much more realistic. And so there's that kind of story. And there's a lot of stories dealing with that now about state-controlled media. But then there are stories that are about the opposite, where having a free media will save us. Mm -hmm. And the movie Serenity is like a perfect example of that and totally unrealistic. Oh, yeah. You can't stop the signal. Like once Mm -hmm. we get the information out there, it'll just be everything will be fine. There won't be any filter bubbles or state controlled media or anything like that. (laughs) Once people know about the Reavers and where they came from, they'll just rise up and protest and the government will have to do something about it. You know, it's so interesting because I feel like that was a common trope until maybe 10 years ago, this idea that like, if we can just let people know what's going on, if we can just get it reported in the media, it'll have to stop because there'll be so much 
outcry. And what we found really in real life in the last like five, 10 years is people find out about horrible, unthinkable stuff. And maybe we protest, maybe there's like some, we do call our representatives or whatever, but we've kind of gotten a little bit numb to it. And the media just churns out stories every day of horrible crap. And it's just like, oh, there's another one kind of. Yeah. Another great example of this is Mira Grant's series about zombies, uh, which starts with the novel Feed. And that's about how there is a zombie outbreak. She portrays it kind of like a disease. In fact, it's a very kind of realistic view of a pandemic. And the only people who will write about it are bloggers. Wow. And so yeah, it's actually, it's a great series. I think uh, the, the collected edition of all the novels just came out so you can buy it as like an omnibus book. And the only people who will tell the truth are these bloggers. And of course, they can be easily undermined. And like people can just say, oh, it's just blogs and things like that. But I think that... There's the censorship fantasy and then alongside it, or there's, I shouldn't say fantasy, but there's science fiction dealing with censorship. And then there's also science fiction dealing with how do you cope with censorship? Like right. how do you get around it? And I think that the answer is always, how do you create a form of media that won't be stopped by governments? Yeah. But we have yet to find a form of media that can't be stopped by filter bubbles, which is why I think Malka Older's books are so interesting because she's like, yeah, I mean, how, what do you do if like information is constantly being filtered? Yeah, I feel like there are, I can't think, remember where they are, but I feel like I've read stories where people, in order to get a piece of information out, will make like a puppet show or a kid's comic or like something that nobody takes seriously right. to try to get the information out in the public in a way that nobody's going to notice. So actually changing gears slightly, on the social media episode, we talked a lot about like privacy and how there's desirable thing where like you could have a conversation with somebody and then it would be private and you wouldn't be able to talk about it to anybody else. But that is also a form of censorship. And there's actually, I did a deep dive yesterday into this whole page on tvtropes.org where they have a trope that they talk about called tongue tied, where basically somebody knows something or is aware of something, but is unable, like physically unable to talk about it. And the most Notable example that I've seen recently is kind of a spoiler, but I won't go into details. In Steven Universe, Pearl has a secret about Steven's mother. And for a long time, people noticed that whenever she tried to talk about Steven's mother, she would suddenly just cover her mouth and go like, oh, and stop talking. And it was like something was keeping her from speaking. And then we eventually found out what it was, and I won't go into that. But it was a thing where, indeed, it was that she was like, had a physical block or like a mental block that prevented her from speaking. And, you know, in the tongue-tied TV tropes page, there's examples that range from like having a curse put on you, like a gaze or something, where you're like magically unable to talk about something. There could be a brain implant that like basically kicks in. If you start talking about a particular thing, you just, your speech centers shut down or whatever. But it's a thing and that's that's I mean, kind obviously of, Clockwork Orange is kind of dealing with that too. Yeah. And by the way, Clockwork Orange is constantly being censored and challenged. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's interesting. It's like this idea that like rather than censoring it once you've put it out there, once rather than like trying to burn the book or try to keep you from talking about it on the TV or radio or whatever, we're just going to stop it at the source. We're going to just find a way to make it so that you can't even speak of this. And I think that that's like the scariest kind of metaphor for censorship to me that thing where you just can't even, you're prevented. It really is true. I wanted to finish up by circling back to what you said about privacy and its connection to censorship and how these are kind of enforced, pieces of enforced privacy, where it's like you can't tell the secret even if you should. And it's interesting because there's a twin problem where people can't get access to privacy that they need 
And at the same time, they can't get access to a public sphere to speak that they also need. And I think I have a hunch that those things are connected. And I think right now in our culture, both in our science fiction about our culture, but in our real life culture, that's the crisis that we're having is how do I get access to real privacy, but also where is the public sphere that I can just talk in? and talk in a way where I won't be filter bubbled or mobbed. Um, and you know, the, there's no answer, but I mean, I think that's a really rich vein for science fiction to be looking into. And, and for there to be a public sphere that's like genuinely public and not just corporate controlled and not just like owned by some moderated and mediated and you know con- constructed by some corporate entity that's going to basically tell you when and how and where you can use it. Kind yeah, of. that's where you get into free speech. And that's kind of where we end the conversation. And we're going to talk to Ron Turner a little bit about his adventures in free speech. Great. So we're so incredibly lucky to have a special guest with us in the studio now. We're joined by Ron Turner, the founder and publisher of Last Gas Books. Thanks so much for joining us, Ron. You know, Last Gas started up as uh, Last Gasp Eco Funnies. <laughs> <laughs> really? Eco Funnies. Yeah. Wow. We, we, we started as a result of there was a, a singular ecology center in the com- country. It was in Berkeley. And a friend who I knew from the Farm Workers Union headquarters down in Delano, Rod Freeland, was running the presses there. And we would get together on the weekends and smoke some weed. And <laughs> we had a good time. And we would often like try to, between various marches and protests and whatnot, try to figure out well, what's next. And we figured ecology was next. Uh, we started fooling around in 69. and. By January of 1970, we had decided we should do an underground comic because that was the coolest thing at the time that was happening and have it as a benefit book for the Berkeley Ecology Center. And we called it Slow Death Funnies. (laughs) That's a catchy title. (laughs) Wow. Back in those days, 50 years ago, you were publishing and distributing comics by people like R. Crom, Robert Williams, Matrina Robbins, and a bunch of other amazing people. And you know, walk us back through that. How did you get involved in indie comics and underground comics, you know, back in the late 60s? It was definitely the wrong turn in the maze. <laughs> I, uh, I was a graduate student at San Francisco State, and we were in the midst of a gigantic uh, strike out there, longest college strike in U.S. history. And one of my roommates was Roger Alvarado. He was head of the Third World Liberation Front. And we had, you know, we had, were pretty much on the line every day for months and months and months and in the middle of it all everybody was like you know needing some relaxation and I had discovered Zap Comics the first one that came out and I found out where you got them Gary Arlington's comic book store in the Mission and where you had to buy you know a lot of these things literally under the counter you know you had to say a certain thing and then Gary would reach under the counter and sell you one because they were that illegal you know it was a crazy, (laughs) crazy thing and I used to bring some of the comics with me at night when we'd have kind of, you know, resting and bandaging ourselves up from the blows that we received on the lines that day. And what I found was like w- w- comics were like this universally interesting medium 
we had this one that was a Radical American Comics by Paul Buell, who had put this together as an adjunct to the Students for the Democratic Society, a whole underground comic. And Gilbert Shelton had done a great strip called uh, A Parody of the War Comics, and he had done it as Smiling Sergeant Death in his merciless, <laughs> Mayhem Man. Merciless Patrol or something like that. In that era where comic, these underground comics were actually illegal and you had to buy them actually under the counter and know a, a catchphrase or whatever, how do you go about distributing comics when they're actually against the law? Well, um, the one lovely thing about the Bay Area and a lot of other places was at least at that time, things were so cool that – and also there's the factor if you aren't – if you don't know better, you go do things sometimes. So I didn't know any better, so I went around and set up about 200 accounts in the Bay Area. And we were selling the comic books, or first Slow Death Funnies and other things, to beauty parlors. You know, somebody would have a hip hair salon down the peninsula, and they'd say, hey, look at this. You want to sell this? Sure, you know, because it identified them as hip as well. <laughs> there was a, a fancy leather store on Union Street here in San Francisco called The Dead Cow. <laughs> That's and they, a great name. And, and right in the middle of all the leather and, and fancy shelves and, you know, awful guys who look like boxes <clears throat> of cornflakes with ties on them, there was, you know, here was our slow death funny sitting right out there. It was great. What, what was the strangest comic you ever published? My favorite example was a comic book called Felch. <laughs> and Felch would be defined as the oral retrieval of semen from someone else's anus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm familiar. Uh, that was a very oh, elegant oh. definition. Yeah, that was a very elegant. Super elegant. And succinct. And yes. succinct, yes. Well, you don't want to linger there. <laughs> um, anyway, the reason Felch came about was there had been some comic books called Snatch Comics and Jizz Comics and Cunt Comics. And mm hmm various comic books. Cunt Comics was a... Uh, these were all done in very small, five-by-seven format, too, and they were, like, full of sexy stuff. And, uh, and a lot of the great cartoonists were in there, Robert Williams and Spain Rodriguez and S. Clay Wilson. And you know, basically all the Zap crew was there, plus Rory Hayes and a bunch of other people. And, uh, Cunt Comics had a thousand print run, and um, the centerfold was a drawing of a woman... Uh, with her legs spread and the vulva staring very much at you. And there was a, a notation that the, you know, that uh, the contest was is that, uh, you know, one of these comics has, you know, a big blotter acid. Oh, God. <laughs> a tab of, of acid. Uh, uh -huh. In the center, you know. and uh, So you better uh, lick. <laughs> exactly. And, the, and apparently I, and one person did win. One person licked it, and it was a type of acid. Yes. Wow. Okay. All so, right. So know. that's an interesting distribution model. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, but so personal tools. But what was the what was the origin of Felch? Yeah, we we need the okay. Felch story. <laughs> all right. All right. So, <laughs> there's a payoff here. There's a payoff. So, so the guys got together and they said like. They were grumbling that these guys say we do dirty comics. Oh, well, fuck them. Let's go do a dirty comic. So they said, we're going to do a dirty. This is a dirty comic, damn it. <laughs> and uh, they produced Felch. And it was a wonderfully uh, gross book. <laughs> wonderful gross book. But it got busted in Long Beach. Mm -hmm. And 
I remember my friend George DiCaprio, this would be the father of Leonardo, uh, who, uh, who I'd met when he was producing underground comics in New York City in about 71 or so. And he, um, had by this time, had moved down to L.A. to become a screenwriter. But to support that hobby, uh, he was distributing our comics around. So one of, his head, one of his shops got busted. So the trial was going on. And they had this, so the poor defendants shaking in their shoes and the big arm of the law about to crush them. And the judge says, uh, all right, so what's the evidence we have here? You know, prosecution. And the prosecutor says, I'd, Your Honor, I'd like to present Felch Comics, exhibit number one. They had a box of about 50 comics or so. He says, okay, bring me the evidence. Bring me the Felch. <laughs> <laughs> they went through the box. The Felch was missing. Somebody had purloined it from the evidence locker. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and the judge got ranting and got everybody into chambers and was screaming about that. How can you bring this in here without any evidence? He threw the case out. Do you have a sense of how many of the comics that you've distributed and published have been challenged, like in court or by a community where maybe it never rose to the level of being a court case? But, like, do you hear about it every time it happens? I hear about it, but um, I don't think I've ever been drugged into court personally, except for, well, there were some other, I mean, we did do the, I was palling around with Dan O'Neill, cartoonist, and he uh, had this obsession with Mickey Mouse. Uh, he put together a group of guys called the Air Pirates, and each one of them took a Disney character. And I agreed to publish this back in, again, early 72 or so. And paid these guys and bought them groceries and things, whatever. Anyway, we finally came out with a comic book. And we knew we'd be busted. I mean, this is like, you know, firing across Disney's ship with our cannons, you know, right straight out there. We had Minnie and Mickey fucking and sucking, you know. So. <laughs> and... Um, so, but they were done in, in exact Dis Disney style, okay? And uh, we got two out. We were supposed to get three out before we got busted. And my lawyer friends around town were telling me, like, uh, you know, that you'd definitely be busted by the third one. But because these guys were screwing around, they didn't get, they still owe me the one book, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this thing went all the way up to the Supreme Court. But the guys were like uh, uh, Michael Stepanian and uh, Terry Hallinan's law offices over 819 Eddie in representing them. And my only agreement with these guys was that I, uh, if anything happens, you can't say I published it. So they said fine, and they had this little thing. It was uh, a Hell Comics logo on it. You know, if you want, you want more of these comics, you can go to hell. <laughs> so, right up until the time that they lost at the Supreme Court, I was out of it. So I didn't get any of the publicity value, Oh, huh. unfortunately. But I got the bill because then they said when it came up to pay the three-quarters of a million dollar uh, fine in the 70s, uh, I said, oh, well, it's not us. It's him. So, so then I had to go through hell with Disney. But anyway, 
I came out of it okay because apparently at the time the copyright laws were being rewritten by Disney and the other companies, mm-hmm. or well, by our government, excuse me, but Disney was paying for it all. Mm-hmm. And they knew that they were going to be out of copyright in a very short time. And they were like trying to plug any holes. <sighs> wow. So we came up with a deal that we'd both pay our own legal fees if I agree, signed a thing saying I would not do anything anti-Disney for 10 years. Wow. wow. Anti-Disney. I, yeah. I, so I signed this silly thing. And, uh, you know, hey, I only got to pay about 1500 bucks to my drug dealer attorney from Berkeley. So, <laughs> Wow. Ron, where can people find you and oh. find your stuff? If you'd like to see our stuff, if you uh, are electronically mobile, try lastgasp.com. And there's a listing of everything that we do on there that's available. And see us for new things. Uh, right now we have just uh, co-published... Uh, a book called The Grateful Dead's Family Album with Sherilyn Brandellis. And we have the or the book of Weirdo, which is covers the magazine we did with R. Crumb back uh, for 15 years in the 80s and 90s. And what else do we have coming up? We've got a book called uh, Punk of Pope, The Pope of Punk, which covers the Mabuhai Garden Days with Dirk Dirksen. That's going to be coming out soon. And a big art book by Skinner and some... Oh, we just keep doing them. I don't know how we do it, but we do. <laughs> awesome. I think, I think my son Colin is the reason, because he's most basically running it these days. I'm just an old grouch in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Awesome. Thanks a Thank lot. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here for another episode of Our Opinions Are Correct. You can find us everywhere that fine podcasts are purveyed. Please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps people find us. You can also follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. And we have a Patreon, which means if you like us and have a little cash, you can help support us. And we really appreciate it because we do this all for the love and maybe a little money that you throw our way. (laughs) We record here in San Francisco at the amazing Women's Audio Mission with our producer, Veronica Simonetti. And thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.